Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. I am your host, Paul Ollinger, and I am happy that you are here today to share in this conversation with my guest, Spencer Jacob. Spencer is the editor of the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column and the author of a fascinating new book called The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of the Retail Investor. Here's what it's about in a nutshell. In January of 2021, a large group of small investors from the Wall Street Bets group on Reddit, the lawless social network Reddit, they rallied around the stock of video game retailer GameStop, which they believe had been under attack, unfairly under attack, by short-selling hedge fund Melvin Capital. The subsequent and totally unexpected rally in the stock made millions for several Wall Street Bets members and crippled Melvin Capital, which was losing up to a billion dollars per day during the worst of the crisis. Well, crisis for them, but uh, you know, it was a party for the Wall Street Bets guy. On this week's episode, Spencer and I talk about the perfect storm of market, societal, and technological factors that catalyzed the GameStop phenomenon, why the Robinhood stock trading app, which played a major role in this, this whole scenario, why it was designed to function exactly like a sports gambling app. We talk about uh, how the Wall Street Bets and Robinhood investors, that's in quotations, by the way, investors, you could see me making the air quotes, by the way, if you were watching this on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash crazy money podcast. You should go there, watch all the uh, past episodes and uh, subscribe so that you get all the subsequent episodes. How these investors, in quotes, differed from your boring old E-Trade or Schwab customers like me, the difference between investing and gambling, and lastly, what the profound loss of capital at Melvin Capital means for uh, hedge fund managers in the future. That is, in addition to market-based factors, political factors, climate-based factors, these hedge fund managers also have to take into consideration the potential madness of crowds. It's a fascinating story. I know you're going to love it. Please enjoy this conversation with Spencer Jacob. Spencer Jacob, welcome to Crazy Money. Hey, thanks for having me. Spencer, let's start by getting a little philosophical. What is the difference between gambling and investing? Okay, well, you know, you often hear the stock market compared to a casino. And I, I usually don't like that comparison. I mean, a casino is a place where the, the more you go in, the higher the likelihood that you'll lose, not just lose money, but lose all of your money. Eventually, you'll, you'll hit gambler's ruin and lose all your money. The stock market is a place that has created tremendous wealth, can create tremendous wealth in the future. So, I mean, the, the two are diametrically opposed. You can you can become the richest man on earth and you can be broke in, in the other place. The difference, though, is, is kind of blurred in the case of, of speculative manias because people are basically, it's like putting money on, on black or on red where the odds are, are against you where you, you, you know that people are, are caught up in something. And then there, there's two theories you might have, right? You might have the sort of the, the greater fool theory. You're pretty cynical about it. You know, I understand that this is a bubble. I understand that this object that I'm attaching part of my savings to might not be worth what it is, but a lot of people are interested in it. And I'm going to be smart enough or lucky enough. And really <laughs> luck is, is the, the operative word to get out. You know, I'm going to hop on and hop out. And a lot of the people who I spoke to for my book, uh, were cynical in that way, which is fine. Uh, I, I wouldn't recommend it, right? Because you, your odds are, are, are not that good. Your odds are about as good as sort of like at a, a horse race, right? I mean, you're, you're putting your money onto something that you, you're pretty sure uh, is, is not worth that amount of money, but you're just waiting for some chump uh, to come around who's either making the same bet as you 
or is doesn't know uh, what it's worth and is, is kind of rushing in with his or her money. And so that that to me is, is gambling. That's that's pretty close to a, to a casino where it's, it's a pure game of chance where the odds are not really with you and you're sort of conning yourself into thinking that they are. And and a lot of the same, and what, what I learned, I mean, I've been writing about markets for a long time. I worked in markets before that. And, and I learned a lot through this episode and reporting it because I spoke with gambling experts, I spoke with social psychologists, uh, and I spoke with people who were involved in it. And I, I understood a bit better, you know, the sort of the psychology of one of these, these manias, because a, a lot of, there are a lot of parallels between what goes on at a, a horse race or whatever. Your horse almost came in, you know, the kind of the near miss effect where, well, if I'd gotten into that stock a little earlier, if I'd gotten out a little, little earlier or held on a bit longer, there are all these, these near misses. There are all these, these things that are intentionally today, unfortunately, built into the world of, of investing for small fry that very much resemble gambling. Uh, and and draw from the same playbook intentionally. I remember I've gone to Vegas a few times. Uh, I, I participated in the first dot com uh, run up, the first dot com bubble. Everybody talked about how much money they made on Cisco last month, but very few people talk about how much money they lost at the at the uh, blackjack table or how they got creamed on the downside of a stock that 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 once experienced very high highs. Uh, what what's the psychology behind that? So I'm going to modify that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody talks about the money they made. When you speak to someone about the stock market, the person who just took a bath in some stock is not going to talk about it. The person who just made a killing, your neighbor at a barbecue or whatever, who just made a killing or at one time made a killing is going to talk about it. So the likelihood of hearing about a success obviously is, is far greater. And it gives you the impression that speculation is, is more profitable than it is. Also, people misremember. I mean, it's it's been shown, and this is not a case of dishonesty. You know, if you uh, speak with people about how they did in the stock market, they say, "Well, what kind of return do you think you've made in the last ten years? What, how what, what percent a year on average do you think you've made or lost?" You know, their guesses are are not like just a little bit off. They're wildly off, and and they're being sincere. So people sort of color the past in a in a more positive way, but. In this case, and the crowd that got into the, the meme stocks was different again because they were, in, in many cases, kind of nihilistic about it. You know, they were showing off. They were like, it was like the jackass of finance, you know, where they were, <laughs> you know, trying to do something really cool. And then something bad would happen to them and they'd brag about that. And it, it, they called it loss porn. They call it loss porn on, on Wall Street Bets, which is the forum where the meme stocks you know, phenomenon was born really. And so that's different. Uh, of course, you know, you have people with small amounts of, of money to lose, but you also have people, I think, who sort of have this kind of hopeless attitude. They're, they're not out there like people maybe during the dot-com boom necessarily, you know, kind of projecting their wealth into the future and seeing themselves like driving a Lamborghini and, and having millions of dollars if this can only keep going. They're, they're also, and, and that was, is what one of the very weird things about this story, they used the stock market as a weapon, a societal weapon, kind of a cudgel against people they didn't like very much. If they lost money in the process, some of them actually felt pretty good about it. It was like, you know, like getting a, a battle wound or something, you know, so 
that that's unusual. Uh, that's something that you I don't think you've ever really seen in, in investing. And so I, I hesitate to say this time is different. Those are the four most dangerous words in, in finance. But this time was a little bit different because of the kind of the attitude that people had going in, at least some of the people who were kind of the ringleaders, of the meme stock squeeze, you know, they're, you know, and, and then now that's morphed into kind of conspiracy theories and stuff like that, you know, where they think they're going to make a lot of money in kind of this future, you know, mother of all short squeezes. We can go into that if you want to, or yeah. you can just Google M-O-A-S-S, don't spend too much time going down that rabbit hole. But yeah, there's, um, there's you know, th- this, that is the thing I'm really surprised about is a year, more than a year and a half after sitting down to write this book and six months after it, it, it came out, this thing is still going as strong as it was in the beginning. Not in exactly wow. the same way, but I mean, there's there's a hardcore of, of believers that this this was just a preview of coming attractions. Speculative manias are often and perhaps always a product of their time, and the 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 one you write about the 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 meme stock phenomenon is really uh, could only have happened in 2019 or 2020 based on all the players that came together in this perfect storm. Let's talk about some of them. You mentioned Wall Street bets. Tell us about Reddit and Wall Street bets. Sure. Well. Reddit and Wall Street bets. Reddit is calls itself the front page of the internet. For all its popularity, it's not a very profitable web property. It actually never has made, really made a profit because of, of its nature. You know, you have different kinds of social media. You have social media where you have influencers and things like that, and people are basically contributing their content and it's being monetized. Reddit is not very good at monetizing content, but it has an algorithm that makes things popular. And in in its case, it's the groups of people who congregate around a certain interest. And so there are today about 100,000 subreddits, different forums where people discuss things. And, it, you know, I, I like Reddit. I mean, there, there are things like you can go and talk about fly fishing or trail running or, um, you know, people got information when they couldn't get through to state un- unemployment offices uh, when the pandemic first hit about how to apply for unemployment and how to get, you know, get through when the lines are jammed. There's all kinds of useful stuff. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, you got to be careful with health advice or financial advice or anything like that on, on the <laughs> internet from a bunch of randos, but there's some good stuff there. But Wall Street Bets was kind of a pretty marginal property until a few years before our story begins. And it was a place where people looked not just to make money, but to do it through hacks. So not like through, I'm going to buy this dividend paying stock and own it for 10 years. And this is why I think you should buy it. Or this is why I I disagree with you and you shouldn't buy it. It was, how do we kind of hack the system? How do we jump on something anomalous and weird that's happening right now? I don't really care why it's happening. Something out there happening, or where do I go to show off this dumb thing I'm about to do, where I'm going to go take out a second mortgage on my house and put it all into deep out of the money call options on monkey.com, right? I mean, that's the that's the kind of place it, it was. And as this young generation that really had had no interest in, in finance, for reasons I, I can explain, a lot of things fell into place for this to happen, suddenly got very, very interested in the stock market, super interested. Wall Street Bets was the, the main place. There was TikTok and there was YouTube and there was Facebook and there were Twitter influencers, but Wall Street Bets was specifically the the place where this revolution emerged from and the algorithm that that determines popularity is is an algorithm in all those other places you know it's something that computer scientists designed on reddit the difference is that the algorithm is human design so it's like a more mm. extreme algorithm right so let's say 
let's say you and I both went onto Wall Street Bets in 2019 or early 2020 when things were really kind of starting to go gangbusters, and you said something really sober, and you gave a long cerebral explanation of why you bought a stock. Right. And then I went in there, and might, I, I might be making it up, right? There's no way to know. I have like a pseudonym. I don't have a, you know, I don't, I don't have followers. But I go on there and I say, hey, I took my kid's college savings and I took out a second mortgage and uh, uh, heavily margined, you know, bought call options on this stock, you know, YOLO, you only live once. I'm going to get a lot more attention because that's crazy, right? And so not only is it, is it that I'm going to get more attention than you, but by the time a, a, a third person comes to the, the site, they're not going to see your cerebral take because it right. won't have gotten upvoted. And mine will get upvoted a lot and possibly rise to the, the top of the page. And people think like, what an idiot or how cool, right? And so that's the place that, that you've heard about from your friends. That's the place where you go and learn about how to get in on the stock market thing. And you're 20 years old and have no idea what you're doing. You're going to see my crazy post and get the impression that this is what one does. And then when I make money doing it, because so many people have, have followed my lead, then you'll definitely pay attention to what I'm doing. And so that that's kind of what was going on there. But you had several other things too. Right. You had a lot of things falling into place. So so the other big empowerment tool that they're using is uh, not your father's E-Trade account, right? It's Robinhood, right. this app that grows in parallel with e, e, with uh, Wall Street Bets. Tell us about uh, Robinhood and, and why, what made it so appealing to this generation of uh, traders. Yeah, so Robinhood, even when our story begins, Robinhood was a pretty small stockbroker, except for the fact that in the five years preceding our story, about half of the brokerage accounts opened in the United States were opened with Robinhood. So how could those two things be true? How could half the accounts that are opened with a broker, you know, be opened with this small broker, yet it's it's a kind of a small fry in terms of the amount of, of money that people have invested there, like a lot smaller than E-Trade and Ameritrade, Schwab, Fidelity, even interactive brokers and stuff like that. And the reason is that people had very small accounts. It appealed to people who were very, very new, who were just dabbling. Um, and so the median account had something like $241. Sorry to interrupt. How much did it take to open a Robinhood account? 50 bucks, 100 bucks? What was the it, 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 minimum? It, 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 you could open it with 20 bucks. You could open it with pocket change. Wow. So in the past, I mean, let's go back. Let's take, take a trip down memory lane, not let's say even our memories, like our parents' memories. If you went to the 1940s or 1950s or 1960s, you know, it would take a substantial amount of money before you could uh, justify opening up a brokerage account because just trading, you know, making a single trade and there were no index funds, right? And there were some mutual funds, but they were quite expensive. You might pay seven or 8% just to get into a mutual fund. And then it was, you know, there were high fees or whatever. So, you know, that you had to have a lot of money for brokers to help themselves to your money. You know, they didn't really <laughs> want to deal with mom and pop. It wasn't until really the kind of mid to late 1970s, when everything started to be deregulated and computers were invented, that discount brokerages, like and Charles Schwab was the first one that came into their own, where like you might spend 50 bucks and then later 30 bucks to make a trade. It's still pretty expensive. You still couldn't do it with $20, obviously, because it was more than your, you know, the commission was more than the amount of money you invested, but it was coming down. But what Robinhood, and they weren't the first ones to do it, but what they pioneered, what the they were the first ones to really make it profitable, uh, was they offered you trades for zero because that that has become possible. It was it was started by two guys who were doing some back end programming, had a business, 
helping hedge funds trade on stock exchanges. And today's stock exchanges are just big computer banks and outside Kansas City and outside New York City, like in New Jersey near where I live. You know, they're not, uh, you know, you think of the stock exchange people running around in these funny coats. It's that's that's an anachronism. There are about 15 stock exchanges in the U.S. and there are a whole bunch of other kind of black boxes that kind of act like stock exchanges. And so it costs not nothing, but it costs very, very little. And so they're saying, you know, these hedge funds pay almost nothing to make a trade. We could do this for people. Um, and what they concentrated on first was building a really beautiful app. And they kept on testing it out on, on students and grad students near Stanford University, where they were based. And they made this super duper appealing app that in many ways resembles like FanDuel and DraftKings and things like that, which is very familiar to the younger generation. And I don't think it was by accident either. They won App of the Year and they launched it in 2015 and they already had a million people on their waiting list. So they took off like gangbusters. But then in late 2019, every other discount broker basically said, screw it. You know, we can't, we can't compete with these guys. We're going to cut our commissions to zero. And they were worried. I mean, they make money in a lot of other ways. Charles Schwab, you know, if, if you have an account at Charles Schwab, you probably have an account that's a hundred times larger than the typical account at, uh, at, at Robinhood, right? Um, and you have a credit card and you have an individual retirement account or you have a 401k or you, you took out a, a home line of credit or whatever, all kinds of other profitable stuff. So they didn't really care as much about the, the you know, charging you $7 or $5 or whatever they charged you in late 2019 for trade. And they were the first ones to say, screw it. Let's, if you can't beat them, join them. And everyone went to zero. But much to their surprise, uh, trading exploded at every single discount broker and Robinhood as well. So there was this frenzy of, of retail trading. You went from having about 10% of the trades trade, you know, on across various stock exchanges to, by the time my story kind of hits its crescendo, more than one third of, of trades. So you had a gigantic increase in in individual interest in buying and selling individual stocks. And uh, that was because it, it became free. And so there's this, this kind of poorly understood, but now it's better understood, <laughs> uh, theory in economics called the zero price effect, is you can, you can cut the price of something. The lower the price goes, maybe the more people want of it, but up to a certain point, right? If you, if you could buy something kind of pretty mundane and utilitarian in your life that you really only need one of or two of, doesn't matter how cheap it gets. You're not gonna, you're not gonna go out and buy a lot of them. But something that's fun, something like st trading stocks and trading stocks all of a sudden was really fun, especially for younger people. They'll use an, an unlimited amount of that service, and so you had this ex explosion in trading. But of course, it wasn't free because Robinhood has to make money, and it doesn't sell people all these services. It, it does charge them some interest when it like lends them money on on margin and stuff like that. But mainly it makes money by selling trades. And so it, it was very interested in getting its mostly young customers to trade as much as possible. The more they traded, the more money it made. And the more stupidly they traded, the more money it made because <laughs> it got paid more per trade, per options trade and stock trade than its competitors, even though those, those people had a lot more money. It got paid more per trade. Uh, and, and the reason was that the... The, the people who executed its trades, who are not stock exchanges, there are these like black boxes called market makers. They liked dealing with Robinhood's customers because they were very small. So they weren't going to move the stock a lot. 
you know, until our story reaches its crescendo and they moved it a, a, a lot. Like they made this few stocks, the most traded securities in the world for a few days. But before that happened, they, they loved trading with Robinhood's customers because they, they had so little money, they didn't really move things. They were not very smart about the way they placed trades. They didn't place limit orders. They, you know, they bought all kinds of high spread stocks where they could make more money, et cetera, et cetera. They were like the, the you know, kind of peanut butter and jelly, you know, Robin Hood and these market makers. And, right. and so these, these young people were making some rich people on Wall Street much richer by engaging in all this trading. That's, that's the kind of prelude to the story. And you had this explosion in sports gambling. Which uh, which primed people for this kind of speculative activity through their smartphones, and then, as I said, you know, you had social media, and you had these financial influencers who kind of egged people on and got people very interested. Let's okay. So summarize here: the Robinhood trader is young; they're very male; they have small balances; they trade like crazy, and Robinhood itself, the company, is doing everything it can to remove friction, that is, obstacles in between those young, impetuous men and the desire to trade and, and take action in their accounts, which is exactly what every financial advisor in the world will tell you you don't want to be doing, right? And it also uh, comes at a time, as you say, where there are people like uh, Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports and Shamath Palihapitiya, my former Facebook colleague, who are out there moving markets by going on TV and saying, buy this stock, buy that stock. So we, there, there are personalities that are, that are kind of moving markets, Elon Musk, of course, out there. Um, and then along comes the pandemic. So we've got these, these groups of small investors that are banded together on Wall Street bets, this platform that makes trading very, very easy. Oh, and by the way, just introduced options trading to people who shouldn't be trading options. And then the pandemic comes along. What, what kind of gasoline does that pour on the fire? Huge, huge, huge gasoline. The pandemic really, like, you know, you, you, you had this, this a lot of dry kindling there already. You had a lot of excitement. And then it was like just pouring nitroglycerin on it, right? I mean, you know, and 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 throwing a lit match. So you had this just to, to describe the bear market that we had during the pandemic. You were at a record high for stocks in in February 2020. You had uh, the pandemic show up; everyone get locked down. We went in record time, but never nearly so quickly had we gone from record high to a bear market. Stocks fell by S and P 500 fell by about 34 percent peak to trough very quickly. Then you had the most rapid ever by an order of magnitude recovery. So you had like face ripping volatility. So if you're just <laughs> in this for a game, if you're not, you know, if, if, if you're me and you're, uh, I'll be 53 uh, in a couple of months, you know, and you have like 401k and stuff like that, it's pretty worrying for you. You just saw your, you know, if you check your, your 401k statement, you got pretty bad news. If you're 24 years old and you don't really have any substantial savings in the stock market, as a matter of fact, you just opened an account, it's great. This is the most exciting game ever. This is like, you know, a bunch of sports games going down to the wire. You know, it's it's super duper exciting and the opportunity to make money is there. And not only is the opportunity to make money there, but you had smart people like uh, like Warren Buffett, you know, getting out of his airline stocks because, you know, and he, he was wrong, but he could have been right, right? Maybe... Maybe, you know, you would have had 10 million people dead in, in, in the country and, you know, no vaccines for five years or who, who knows what, right? I mean, you didn't know in March and April 2020, it was pretty, pretty prudent to him to get out of it, right? So, you know, he got out of airlines and you had people saying, hey, buy airlines. 
And you've had these airline stocks almost double within a, a period of a couple of months and, and all kinds of other stocks go up too. And you had companies that were bankrupt, you know, doubling in a day. Stuff people are saying, no, don't do that. It's bankrupt. That company has no worth. You shouldn't buy it. And then you're like, I bought it and I sold it the next day and I doubled my money. What are you talking about? You know, it was, why did you tell me not to buy that? I'm going to listen to this, this guy who's been trading for all of two months uh, on Twitter <laughs> or on, on TikTok. Right, yeah. Cause clearly he knows what he's doing. And this Warren Buffett guy is like well past his prime. So you, you have people who kind of felt like geniuses and l- this has never happened before either in the, from the bottom of that bear market through to the uh, year later, you had 96% of American stocks rise. So it was like shooting fish in a barrel. It was very difficult to pick a loser. Uh, and, and the dumbest stuff went up the most, you know, you had like hydrogen garbage truck startups worth more than major truck manufacturers, companies that have never sold a single vehicle. You know, Nikola that, you know, was caught like basically pushing its trucks downhill to make it look like they could move. I mean, <laughs> and stuff like that. And people poured their hard earned savings into it. And they had new savings, by the way, because these young people often didn't have very much savings to put into the stock market. But because the pandemic hit, they suddenly that stimulus checks, they had enforced savings from not being able to go out, um, from maybe getting uh, being unemployed and getting extra unemployment assistance or what have you. So not having things to spend money on and receiving, um, you know, just kind of pennies from heaven from the government or, or, or what have you. And so, you know, it was not a lot of money, but a, a lot of it was gambled away. You know, it was a very tight correlation between when stimulus checks arrived and when people funded their accounts. And Robinhood, the way that they marketed their accounts wasn't through like TV, like they had some TV commercials, but they were just feel good TV commercials, not, not really sort of out there to drum up business. They, their own customers drummed up business because if you got someone to, to join, uh, then they got a free stock, like a mystery stock. It was like a sweepstakes. Like it could be a $2 stock, but it just might be a $50 stock. So imagine putting $20 into an account and then you get a $50 stock, you know, right. You, you know, all of a sudden you have $70 on a $20 investment. So you're feeling pretty good. And then you go out and, and then if you find a, a friend to sign up, once you signed up, then you get another free stock. So they had like a five-month payback period on this marketing spending. So when does the Wall Street bet gang start to focus in on GameStop? So GameStop was like uh, a situation that that really was was created by hedge funds primarily with, with a lot of hubris. So it was very dangerous. Probably the worst year in, in history for selling stocks short was 2020, you know, because of all the stuff I just described the dumbest stuff did the best. So the sort of things that you might naturally bet against, like, hey, this garbage truck doesn't work. They had a video of it rolling downhill. The kid doesn't even, you know, they haven't sold a single one and it's worth more than the biggest truck maker in the world. I'm going to bet against it. Oops, I just lost a ton of money betting against this thing because people rushed into it anyway. So the things that people felt safe betting against were companies that were total has-beens. And GameStop was like, GameStop was going the way of blockbuster video. People were not really buying physical media in the video game world very much anymore. They were downloading things, right? It was, became digitized or is becoming digitized. Hadn't completely, hasn't yet completely. They uh, were betting against AMC theaters that was months away from running out of money. And people were not really going to the movies in the middle of the pandemic. And even if they'd started to, you know, it was going to run out of money. There was no no saving it. So they they bet against these surefire losers. But those trades became so crowded that people on Wall Street bets noticed that, hey, the thing with short interest is 
when when you bet on a stock, the most you can make is infinity and the most you can lose is all your money. When you bet against a stock, that equation is reversed. You have unlimited losses. And so if there's a, a rapid, for whatever reason, rapid rise in the price of a stock, doesn't matter why it happened, you might start bleeding a lot of money very quickly and have to buy back the stock. So you, you don't own it. You, you sold it without owning it. You borrowed it to repay that loan. Otherwise, your losses will, will mount you know, as long as the, the stock keeps going up and you might, uh, you might actually run out of money and be bankrupted. And so in the case of GameStop specifically, 140% of the available shares were shorted, which is possible. It's not illegal. It's a lot of misunderstanding about that. It is possible to do, but it's very reckless. And you only would really do it again with the surefire loser. And these hedge funds, you know, it was a variety of different funds that, uh, but there's one in particular that had had that position on since 2014, a very successful hedge fund on Wall Street called Melvin Capital, that in the period of just a, a handful of days on that and other stocks lost $7 billion. Since my book came out, it, it actually went out of business, mm. but it lost $7 billion, needed an infusion of cash. No, $7 billion is a lot of money. And the amount of money lost collectively by short sellers on GameStop and the other meme stocks goes into the tens of billions of dollars. Short squeezes happen all the time, but they don't happen intentionally. And that's what really got my attention about the story because I, I've been following markets for a long time. And it's illegal to do that. It would be illegal if you know if you and I had a hedge fund and we saw someone doing that and we said, hey, let's all gang up on him in secret in some smoke-filled back room and buy a, a, a bunch of the stock all at once, and then buy a bunch of call options and stuff like that all at once, then we, we'll really have him over a barrel and make a ton of money. Well, you can't do that. That's stock manipulation. But what happened in this case wasn't, I probably wasn't illegal at all, uh, because it happened out of the open. It was being discussed. You could go back several weeks and even a few months uh, on Wall Street Bets and see this being discussed and see people telling them the best way to do it. Clearly, there were some savvy people there because they were telling them where they could get the most bang for the buck and how they could ambush these hedge funds. Okay, so just to clarify, a hedge fund sees a stock that's weak or a business that's weak, right? They say that GameStop is fundamentally flawed like Blockbuster Video. It is part of the past, not of the future. Their fundamentals are terrible. They're going to go out of business. The stock is worth nothing. They make a bet by borrowing massive numbers of shares, which they will have to pay back in the future. Their bet is that those stock that stock price will go way down so that buying them back will be way cheaper than what they borrowed them for in the first place. To buy them back, there has to be shares to buy in the future. So, so the short squeeze, how does the short squeeze work and what role does Wall Street Bets play in that process? So if you were to, and this didn't happen, but they, that's what they thought they were going to do. If you were to have something called the corner, which is an extreme version of a short squeeze, and it used, used to happen before there was an SEC, this, this happened on a regular basis. You know, all the Vanderbilt and Gould and all these guys, you know, this kind of Wall Street of yore, they would secretly, because there were no computers, you couldn't see them doing it, they would secretly buy up a whole bunch of stock to the extent that like, there, if you were a short seller, it was not possible for you to, to buy back the stock that you owed. There's a kind of a classic quote by Daniel Drew, who's one of these old late 19th century speculators who said, you know, he who sells what isn't his and must buy it back or go to prison. You know, and that's that's pretty much, you know, true. I mean, like, you know, you you're bankrupt. Like you you might have sold this stock at ten dollars, but if I I and my um my group control it all, we could say, well, what's it worth to you? What's what's all the money where's all the money you have? We'll sell it back to you for a thousand dollars. You you must return the stock, otherwise 
you know, you are, uh, you're out of business. So, you know, that's what they were attempting to do. They didn't quite get there. And that's because this group, this group lacked cohesion. It was like, there were some people who thought they were, they were doing that. And they said they would never sell. And even today, you continue to own the stock. They think this short squeeze is going to happen, that it just hasn't happened. And they're phantom shares or all kinds of nonsense, but it came pretty close to happening. And even though it didn't happen, the stock went from, let's say in the, in the spring of, uh, it was less than a, less than a $2 stock in the, um, the spring of, uh, of 2020. And it was worth at its peak, $483. You know, you've had stocks rise like that before, but you've never had it happen because people had organized online to make it happen. So that, that's the, the weird, weird thing that I first noticed. So I said, I, I've got to write about this. And then it became, you know, a, an international phenomenon really with the meme stocks. Um, and then, and then something else weird happened, which is that Robinhood almost went out of business, almost fried the, the system circuits and had to halt uh, purchases. Right, which seems very suspicious if you're part of the crowd yeah. that's trying to drive the stock up, and all of a sudden Robinhood halts trading in, in in that one equity, and the other and the guys on the other side of the trade apparently have the the chance to at least take a step back, regroup, and and so it looks like Robinhood is in the hands of of the the hedge fund, uh, the, the the dark black hedge fund industry. Right. What happens at that point? Yeah, and just to say, like you know, hedge funds. This generation is is distrustful of Wall Street. This is the Occupy Wall Street generation. You know, their formative experience were their parents or their parents' friends or whoever suffering during the financial crisis, maybe losing their homes, lose, you know, seeing their savings cut in half, what have you. So they and 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 Wall Street was, you know, seen as 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 the villain there, and so. It's not that they they had class resentment necessarily. Uh, there are rich people like Elon Musk who they thought were great, but uh, people who put on a suit and go to an office on Wall Street, and then especially hedge funds, and then especially short sellers who always have been reviled, it seems like a, a nefarious thing to do to bet that a stock will go down. Short selling hedge funds, they were enemy number, number one. And so hurting them was was part of the appeal. That was, it was like really a twofer for most of the people involved. And of course, it's they aren't a monolith. There are people who... Were, were out doing this just to make money. And there are people who are doing this just to hurt hedge funds, but there was a, a heavy overlap that, that wanted to, to do both. And for a while they were doing both until Robinhood pulled the plug. I can explain to you the reason it's, you can read my book and there's a whole chapter explaining why it happened, but it seems awfully suspicious because just as these hedge funds were totally on the ropes and you had, you know, basically it was a major international news story that GameStop was, you know, that the tables had been turned on Wall Street, you had the main broker for this cohort say, uh, sorry, actually, you're not allowed to buy the stock anymore. You could sell it, but you can't buy anymore. Um, and they didn't do a very good job of explaining it, in part because they were about to go out of business. They needed to go out and raise a whole bunch of money. They didn't want to basically say, oh, hey, we're almost out of, you know, out of money. And, um, you know, they, they needed to keep that part quiet for at least several hours. Uh, they later gave a, a pretty good explanation, and there's, there have been reports about it, and the reasons are, are totally transparent, but it seems extremely suspicious. And the, the fund that, uh, that lost the most money that I mentioned earlier, Melvin Capital, got a cash infusion from Citadel uh, LLC. Citadel LLC is the sister company of Citadel Securities, which is the main processor of trades for Robinhood. So you can see that it also has the name Citadel, also has the same major shareholder, uh, one of the richest men in America named Kenneth Griffin. And 
it seems like there's uh there are all these kind of overlapping interests and the kind of the fix was in and it was like you know heads uh heads we win tails you lose you know and that that was the that it was very easy to get that impression. And then you had several politicians stoking that, you know, maybe they didn't understand. Uh, I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt, but you had politicians on the far left, the far right in the middle, basically everybody, anybody who had any common sense who wanted to comment on it was siding with these populists, with these people who were right. trading these stocks, these young people. So, you know, and then late night talk show hosts and everybody, and, and then congressional hearings were called that very day. So it, it you know, it, it, it seemed like a huge scandal, but the scandal really was that the, most of these young people lost money and they were kind of goaded into, into gambling and no, no one had done anything about that. And no one does anything about it today because there's a very lucrative business of, uh, basically of just scalping, you know, money from, uh, from young inexperienced investors who don't know how they should be investing their funds. You know, they, they, and that's, we started off in this conversation talking about a casino. They, they treat the stock market like a casino. If you treat it like one, then the house is going to, you know, eventually walk away with your money and not vice versa. The house in this case is Robin Hood, right? The house is a lot of companies. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the house is Robin Hood. The house is Citadel. The house is all the middlemen. So Wall Street is mainly not made of, of hedge funds that are that are betting big amounts of money. Wall Street is mainly made up of middlemen that mm -hmm. like it when you show up. They're very happy when you show up. When something like this happens, it's a very exciting time for Wall Street because everyone's going to make money with a few exceptions. I mean, Gabe Plotkin at Melvin Capital had a really bad month, you know, in January 2021 and a few other people. But most hedge funds who were involved in this made money because, you know, they're they're benefiting from the volatility or they were just dumb luck being in the right place at the right time. And all the middlemen made a ton of money. You know, they they love it when when there's a, a surge in volatility and a surge in trading activity. The investment banks had record quarters, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and all these people, you know, because they all had businesses that touch this sort of thing. And they were just gushing about how much money they're making. And so, yeah. And so, if they're making a lot of money, then someone else is 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 contributing a lot of money, and it's you know it, it was the young retail trader primarily during this time, uh, and you know and yet they came away from it angry, not at the people who were sort of enabling their really in, in some cases it, it just really did descend into kind of path, kind of pathological gambling, but they they were angry at the hedge funds uh, who would shorted these stocks, you know, and, and so it, it just sort of, you know, this is completely backwards, upside down world. And the hedge funds, hedge funds are not angels, you know, but they're, if you're out there shorting a stock, you're taking a, a very substantial risk because you did your research and you think something should go down. I mean, if you're a retail investor, hedge funds are kind of a pretty good part of the ecosystem to have, because the only thing that you can do as an investor, you can bet that a stock is going to go up and buy it, or you can abstain and not buy it. You can't, it's not very easy and you really shouldn't bet that it's going to go down. It's something, not, not something you sh should do yourself. And people generally don't do themselves because you can lose a ton of money very quickly. And so you have these professionals who see prices that they think are wrong and they go in and they, they take the opposite bet and put some downward pressure on the stock. It makes it more likely that the price that you'll see when you show up at the stock market with very little experience is more correct. It makes it more likely that Enron will go out of business more quickly rather than more slowly and, and stuff like that. Not just frauds, of course, but just, you know, it, it having them there is, is helpful. You know, they're, they're doing it in a self-interested way, but having people who can bet against 
stocks is helpful to you, yeah. the small investor. But this isn't just about the fleecing of the small investor. Again, ironically, by one party, which is named after the mythical uh, character who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. But it's also about the power of the small investor, right? As you write that a million people with $1,000 each can do a lot of damage. And, and in a way, certainly yeah. not anticipated by the, by, the, by the people in the hedge fund world, right? Yeah, yeah. And so we're in a new era because you have, you have social media where things can go very viral very quickly. Uh, and you have people able to organize on social media. And so that, that's something that you never had before. Because as, as I said, you know, you used to have it in the old days where very rich men and, you know, that going back to an era when it was just men, it was just rich men. There were no poor people, you know, involved in the stock market. And you'd have a handful of, of rich people gang up on another rich person, basically, in the stock market. There's just these games constantly being played. Today, of course, you have millions and millions of people in the stock market, and it's very difficult to, to do that. But all of a sudden, social media has made it possible for these kind of, I don't know, as, the, the, as a guy, Pete Atwater, who I spoke with in the book, who calls them flash mobs of money. They mm. can make stocks go crazy. The problem is, is that you, you can't all make money. Like, you know, if I say like, hey, let's all buy this thing and I get the ball rolling and it turns into something that really builds a lot of momentum, Bed Bath & Beyond recently, stuff like that. Well, that's fine, but it might last a few hours, a few days, a few weeks. But eventually, you know, something has to be worth what it's what it's really worth. I mean, they're, they're, you, you run out of, of greater fools and you don't have that many people who are late to the party anymore. And all of a sudden, the, the kind of the air comes out of the bubble. And so it, it, it makes retail investing really more dangerous and much more open to manipulation because you don't know who these people are who get the ball rolling uh, on social media. You have a lot of, of very smart people now. Um, you have about 80 to 85% of hedge funds, by one estimate, uh, that are, are monitoring social media in order to to profit from it, or at least to kind of avoid being blindsided the next time, where, you know, they have they have things that can read Reddit a lot faster than you can read. Uh, they can read 10,000 Reddit posts, you know, before you've read one post, and use natural language processing to say, hey, this is a bot, this is not real, this might get going, you know, and, and they can... They, they might be the ones ultimately making the most money, not individuals. And people don't understand that. Um, you know, it's just like a boiler room pump and dump scheme in a way, you know, except it's in this case, it's completely legal because they're not out there calling up people and saying, hey, you know, you have to get in on this opportunity, kind of Wolf of Wall Street style. They see somebody, you know, they, they see someone else getting it started and see what's going viral. And they, they hop on these things uh, in a much more effective way than you can. Robinhood put, uh, as as some have called them, financial weapons of mass destruction into the hands of just beyond children uh, to disastrous consequences at time. There was at least one Robinhood customer who thought he lost $700,000 and threw himself in front of a train. Have they moderated or have they modified their business practices at all? Yeah, they, they, they say they have. So the, the weapons of uh, financial weapons of mass destruction you refer to are, are options. Options are derivatives. Uh, it, they were not allowed generally to engage in, although this, this person did engage in the types of options trading that could, could wipe you out where you would have a gigantic negative balance. They mainly transacted in the kinds of options that, where you would pay a premium. You basically, you'd buy a contract to purchase or sell something in the future. Uh, and very often Robinhood's customers would buy lottery ticket like contracts where they'd say, okay, the stock's at $20. 
um, I'm going to buy this the right to buy the stock in a week for twenty dollars. Well, okay, I'll sell it to you for a penny because it's not going to be twenty dollars in a week unless something really crazy happens. Uh, of course, that those crazy things did happen during the meme stock squeeze in 2020, and so the you know some people did make money, but the payoff was tremendous. If you paid one cent for something, uh, you know you might make five dollars or ten dollars, right? You might make fifty or a hundred times your money. Uh, if, if, you know, if things happen the right way and you'd read about people doing that uh, and people did make fortunes like that, um, during the meme stock squeeze. And so it, it became hugely appealing, the number of, especially of call options purchased. And also, uh, the, these financial weapons of mass destruction were used as, um, kind of a kind of asymmetrical warfare tool during the meme stock squeeze, because, if you did, if you had two hundred bucks, yeah, you could go out and buy GameStop or buy AMC or something, and pile on to the amount of uh, the kind of tsunami of money that was was buying these stocks. But if you use that money instead and you bought out of the money call options, so call options the very small chance of paying off, even if you were pretty sure you were not going to make money, you knew that you were putting pressure on them because the options dealers who gladly will write you a contract for the call option. Once the the share price starts to rise, they have to mechanically start buying the stock. So it's possible that you put down ten dollars or fifty dollars, and they wound up buying five hundred or a thousand dollars worth of stock before your contract expired, just to hedge themselves in the because the the stock started to rise. And so I have, I have this chapter in the book. It's it sounds strange, but I mean it's you know it's it's called a gamma squeeze, and this was described in detail how to do it and why it worked. On this message board, you know, you did not have a lot of cerebral posts that went viral on this board, but this was one of them that did, where somebody said, hey, this is how you rig the system. This is a hack for the system where you guys with a bunch of you with a little bit of money buy these kinds of options with this kind of maturity, this far out of the money. And, you know, if the wind blows the right way, you know, you can create a stampede with a very small amount of money. Well, it's a really interesting story, Spencer, and I enjoyed the I enjoyed learning a lot more about what I had read about tangentially in the news and getting under the hood with it. The name of the book is The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of the Small Investor by my guest, Spencer Jacob. Spencer, where can our readers and listeners, sorry, listeners and viewers, nobody's reading here, not on the internet, uh, where can they find out more about you? Now, reading is old fashioned. Well, you can read my, uh, my tweets at my Twitter account, which is Spencer Jacob, that's S-P-E-N. C-E-R-J-A-K-A-B. Um, you can look at spencerjacob.com and you can read uh, my articles and my colleagues' articles at the Wall Street Journal where I'm the editor of the Hurt on the Street column. Uh, just Google Spencer Jacob and um, and read uh, what we write at Hurt on the Street, which is the financial analysis and commentary section of the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for having me. Do do that. Don't join Robinhood and buy a bunch of call options. That'll do do that in twenty years no, no, when, when you've Please learned don't. something by reading Spencer's Spencer's writing. So, Spencer, thanks a lot for your time. We'll put links to all that in the show notes. I greatly appreciate you joining us today. Hey, thank you. Hey, everybody, if you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.